Welcome to Podcast One. We hope you'll support our sponsors who bring you these podcasts absolutely free and with limited interruptions. And of course, we appreciate you listening to this show, which will get started in just a second. Commercial real estate challenges? For 160 years, companies around the world have trusted Savills for expert guidance and perfect workspace solutions. See what Savills can do for you at Savills.us. The following program is a Forbes and Podcast One production. Hi, I'm Denise Ristari, and this is Mentoring Moments, a podcast where smart, witty, and bold women are sharing their triumphs and their skids. We aren't just talking, we're taking action, and we're inviting you to join us every Wednesday in my New York City apartment, where we are proudly sponsored by the Business Platinum Card from American Express. Okay, so here's a question. What could possibly scare a woman who checked her car every day for a bomb? Well, that's just one of the things we're talking about in part two of my conversation with Lauren Anderson. Lauren is a former FBI executive, and she's now an international geopolitical consultant. And she's on a mission, and that's to help women and youth find their powers. So doing a two-parter is new for me. And I had to think about how do I introduce the second part? So since I watch Homeland, I'm a big fan of Homeland, and they always do that previously on Homeland to start off every episode, previously on Mentoring Moments. Lauren and I talked about drug bust and how she followed her gut, even when a man with more power was telling her how to do it his way. And then I just love this. I was kind of joking when I asked her about doing a rest in high heels like they do on TV. And she's like, well, you know, we really did kind of do that back in those days. I used to wear high heels, a skirt suit, a silk blouse, and I had body armor under my silk blouse. And I'm like, what? We talk about how and why she became one of the first women on the SWAT team. So today I do have a few questions for her. We're going to have a great conversation. One of the questions is, did she always carry a gun? Does she carry a gun now? And what was she doing at 9-11? She was at the FBI, but what was she doing? She was there for 29 years. And what is she doing now? What she's doing now, she says, tops everything she's ever done. So let's get started and find out more. And is there anything that scares you? The dog scare you? What what scares you? (laughs) (laughs) Something's got to scare you. I just want to know what it is. I love dogs, except if I'm running down a beach and a German shepherd comes up and decides to play and jumps up and bit my arm, which happened in real life. But what scares um, you? What makes you, what are you afraid of? Are you afraid of failure? Oh, I'm certainly afraid afraid of failure. There's no question. I've gotten much better at accepting that and knowing that every time that in my mind that I think that I failed, I've had huge growth spurts after that. And I know a lot of people would say the same thing, but it's certainly true of me. Um, Uncertainty scares me. And uncertainty, um, in a security sense, I love uncertainty in terms of my day. Part of what really appealed to me about the FBI is that nothing would be the same. And so in that sense, I thrive on uncertainty and things changing all the time. But the times that I can think of that I was most afraid was when I was in certain situations overseas in a, in a country that was in conflict or where there was a lack of good rule of law institutions and knowing that if something happened to me, the chances of it being handled appropriately were remote. Like the first time I went to Kinshasa in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, days before I'd gotten there, 
an Italian woman who worked for the Italian Red Cross had been ripped out of her car at an intersection that I was going through every day between my hotel and the embassy. And she had been taken and, and gang raped by more than two dozen men and, and tossed on the side of the road. And that scared me because, first of all, the diseases she would have had, what she went through, the trauma as a victim. And second, because even though I was there and I had partners and I had to trust them to a certain degree, the sense that that could happen to me, absolutely there, an absolute vulnerability because I was not permitted to carry a gun in those situations. And even still, one person with a gun when there's you know a gang of people, you don't stand a chance. It's going to be used against you. So that was certainly... I've had several moments like that where there was uncertainty um, and fear and and living for years where every day you check your car to see if there's a bomb on it. Your life is so different than mine. (laughs) Well, it's not like that anymore. (laughs) Okay. I would just hope that I had enough money to buy gas. (laughs) Okay. For me too. How do I find unsweetened iced tea in Algeria? I don't know. So did you always carry, did you always have a gun? I really don't know the answer to these questions. I'm not like asking you questions. I I know. did Did for all of the years that I worked in the United States for the five and a half years that I was outside the U S I was not permitted to carry a gun. We kept weapons in the office. And then I actually initiated a process with the host government and with the ambassador to have the FBI um, personnel permitted to have weapons in the office. And so if you needed them, they were there, but we weren't allowed to carry. Whereas here in the United States, always had a gun on my hip attached to me in some way. And so like on Homeland with Carrie as the main character, we've talked about this. So you didn't take your computer home. Right. (laughs) (laughs) No, I didn't bring whiteboards home. I didn't hang up charts and photographs all over my house. No, I'd have been in prison um, for a long, long time and Ivy would have been helping me. Right. (laughs) So let's go to 9-11. So you were... On 9-11, I was assigned to the Washington DC field office of the FBI. And I had been there almost five years. And New York is home for me. I can remember vividly that I was literally sitting in my office doing a performance evaluation with one of the guys who worked on the squad who was an analyst, but who was a retired uh, Metropolitan Police Department sergeant. He's an exceptional human being and great resource. And we're literally in there talking about this and the door shut and they start banging on my door and they said, boss, turn the TV on right now. Something happened. And that was right after the first plane. And I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, what? And then when the second plane comes, I knew I just got up and left. I said, everybody hang on, stay tight right here. I'm going to the operations center because I knew instantly what it was because I had worked terrorism for many years at that point, and And I knew precisely what was happening. And it was also a difficult leadership moment because the person who was running the office at that point in time was not physically in the office. He was out of the division on a trip. So someone else was left in charge and I was stunned because he clearly didn't know what to do, what to say, where to turn. And I was speechless. You know, I was two layers below him in terms of the hierarchy and I I stood there and I looked at him, have no idea what to do, literally. And so 
one of the other supervisors who was a friend of mine and we had worked in terrorism together at FBI headquarters, we looked at each other and I'm like, okay, so here's what's going to happen. And we both just started saying, this is what needs to be done. Someone needs to go here. Someone needs to go there. We need to make a decision about our employees because at this point now, the planes hit the Pentagon and the fourth plane is still in the air. And we're on a live open telephone line with the FAA listening to what was going on listening to the progress of the plane, not knowing, believing the plane was headed for Washington, D.C., but not knowing, was it going to the White House? Was it going to the Capitol? Was it going somewhere else? We just had no clue. And we're literally all standing around listening to this open line. And I, two of us, not just me, said, we need to make a decision about our employees. They're terrified. They want to go home. We need to decide, do we let them go home or do we keep them here? And what do we do? Because we have no idea what's going to happen. And so finally, the suggestion that the two of us made was, let's not let them go. If they're out of the building, we can't account for them. Let them call home, but let's take them to the lowest basement level. We had a subterranean garage. We had three levels going down below ground. And our recommendation to the boss in charge was that we move all of our employees who were not directly involved at that point in the investigation to that lowest garage level until we knew what was going on. And that's what we did. And then, of course, the plane landed. Everybody knows crash landed in Pennsylvania, right? In Shanksville, and uh, it, it went from there. And it was uh, it was extraordinary for 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 weeks afterwards. And so, then, did, did you stay in D.C. or did you come? Were you in New York or D.C. afterwards? I stayed in D.C. because at that point in time, initially, the New York office was incapable of functioning because of right. their proximity to the Trade Center. They had nowhere to go. And so initially, there was a lot of work that was being done by the Washington field office. And in particular, one of the entity, the entity that I was supervising at the time, wound up doing a lot of the analysis and review of telephone records, documents, all of those sorts of things that were there that didn't, at that point, directly involve an interview of a person. We took over all of that and we did that for a period of time until New York was back up functioning and they wound up working out of a garage, the garage where we kept our cars and we had auto mechanics on the 26th street here. And once they got up and functioning there, they took that piece back over and there were a whole lot of other things we did because we had planes in the DC area, including at the Pentagon and anybody that worked on my team, if they wanted to go out and help at the Pentagon, I said, go. As my primary role at that point was as the liaison to the Metropolitan Police Department and the other agencies and being responsible for keeping everyone up to speed on the investigation in the Washington, D.C. area. So every federal and local law enforcement agency that had representation in the Metropolitan Police Department headquarters, that was one of my roles in the first few days. And were you always in the field or were you at the desk is when I'm using my CSI terminology. <laughs> I am so professional. <laughs> so. I spent four years at FBI headquarters, which it was good. There's a reason why they rotate you in that. If you want to move up in management, because you need to know how it functions from that corporate level. And I found it to be a good experience. It wasn't a place I wanted to remain. So I managed to avoid going back there again on any kind of permanent assignment. I had some temporary ones. So most of my time was in the field. But in the FBI, once you start becoming, once you become a supervisor, which is the first line, you're not working cases on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and for someone who loves working cases, as most good agents do, that's very hard to step away from that. But one of the fabulous things about going overseas, which 
also a lot of people said at the time, well, if you do that, you're, you know, you're cutting off your career and it's not taken seriously. And I'm like, no, sorry, I'm doing this because I think it's important and I really want to do it. But the other thing that was great is, yes, I was the boss of the office, but because it was such a small office, I got to work cases again. So I had my own caseload that I was able to do. So I had the best of both worlds. I was running the office and I was able to do actual agent investigative work again in 24 countries. So it doesn't get any better than that. So let's talk about those people who said, if you do this, it will damage your career. If you if you move to France, it was, mm-hmm. what was your first France or where were you first France or Africa? Uh, Paris and okay. from Paris at the time that I took over um, right after 9-11, the Paris office out of the embassy was responsible for 24 countries. So France, the principality of Monaco and 22 all francophone countries in Africa. Got it. So the territory went from North Africa all the way down to the two Congos, Rwanda and Burundi. That was the lower part of the territory. You are such a big deal. <laughs> you are. You're just a regular person. No, no, you're not. Trust me, you're, you're not. So let's go to today. Okay, so what's it like being on the quote-unquote outside of the FBI, seeing everything that's going on? Right. And for, let me go back. Did you ever work with or for Comey or Mueller? Yes, with with Mueller. Comey, I didn't work personally with on a day-to-day basis. I certainly knew him. Um, I was overseas when he was in the role of the Deputy Attorney General at the Department of Justice under Attorney General Ashcroft. Um, But I had the privilege of working because of different roles I had at different points in time with almost every FBI director. And I traveled with Director Mueller overseas a couple of times. So I had a lot of interaction with him. But um, really tangential in terms of uh, former director Comey. So looking, being on the outside, not being internal Mm -hmm. with the FBI any longer, is that hard with everything? I mean, I think I would be waking up saying like, okay, I need to go in there right now and tell them (laughs) they need to be doing this and this and this. You know, there's a part of that, but the reality is that I was ready to leave. I made the choice to leave when I did. There is a mandatory retirement, but I left before that because I had done everything I wanted to do and I was ready to move on. So in that sense, um, mentally, emotionally, and every other way, I, I was done. It was time to do something else. But it is and it has been extremely difficult to look at everything that's going on. And I can tell you that everybody in the FBI now, whether they're an agent, whether they're an analyst, they're a scientist, it's literal, like, you know, when you put your hands over in your ears and you go, no, 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 I don't want to hear that. It's a huge distraction. None of us that either worked for the organization or still work for the organization like seeing the FBI in the news this way. It's, it's horrifying. It's a distraction. It detracts from everything that you need to do and stay focused on because it's noise that you don't need. It's already difficult enough to do the job. And when you're talking about the kinds of investigations that we know as a result of public reporting that are out there, it makes it extremely difficult to get the job done. And when you look at, for example, the investigation of Hillary Clinton's emails and the server and the one going on about Russian influence, and I know I oversaw and conducted those kinds of investigations myself during my tenure in the FBI. So I know what it takes to do it. And I know how important it is to be able to stay focused on that without what we would call extraneous noise. And so I know that this is creating an environment that is so difficult for the FBI personnel to operate in. But having said that, 
they have laser focus and it is just noise. And no matter who is in charge, no matter who's running what agency, who's running the country, doesn't matter. That's the beauty of the organization and the men and women that work in the organization is they stay focused on the job and they block out what goes on. But no one likes waking up and hearing or seeing things about the FBI on a daily basis in the paper. That's just not the culture. Before we dig even deeper into Lauren's stories, let me give a shout out to the business platinum card from American Express. It's the card I carry and it's the card I used to launch my business. It's because business can be done from anywhere, in the palm of your hand and at the source. However you move your business forward with Business Platinum, it's not about where you are. It's about where you want to take your business next. And nothing helps you like the resources and know-how of the Business Platinum card, backed by the service and security of American Express. At Farmers Insurance, we know the sound of a perfect hot air balloon landing. And a less than perfect one. Seen it, covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance, Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state. There are 120,000 unsolved murder cases in America. It was the next day that I found out from my parents what had happened, that my sister was killed. Each one is called a cold case. Sometimes you have to look really closely to find the evidence. Damn it, I killed her. Damn it, I killed her. Cold Case Files, the podcast. Garcia is walking into the home of a real monster. I was nervous. I realized what kind of person I was dealing with. It's a goosebump moment. Download new episodes every Tuesday on the Podcast One app or subscribe at Apple Podcasts or PodcastOne.com. This is Mentoring Moments with Denise Rostari. So Lauren, I'm sure there are like a million stories that you have to share um, that we would all be like sitting on the edges of our seats wanting to listen to. But is there any story that based on everything we've talked about that comes to your mind right now that you're thinking there's another story I want to share that I haven't shared yet? Yes, there is one. As we look at all of the turmoil and conflict going on in the world, so much of it in the Middle East, but also in Africa, a lot of what has come out of the dialogue is there is a component, there is a segment of our population who looks at that part of the world and believes that they treat all women poorly, that women are second-class citizens. And of course, they don't think the same thing goes on here, and it does. Very much so. But I think there is something that happened during the course of my career that speaks to that and speaks about how if we don't truly look at things through someone else's eyes, we miss opportunities. And I knew at a certain point in time that I wanted to work internationally. And one of my closest friends, who remains a dear friend today, we are both retired, was a guy by the name of Tom Knowles. And we were supervisors together in terrorism in the uh, mid-90s. And then he took on the role of being over all of the legal attaches around the world. And we had talked about it. And he said, I think you should do it. And I said, I definitely want to. And I really wanted to be in the Middle East or North Africa. So the time came when the decision was made to open an office in Amman, Jordan, It had previously been covered out of Tel Aviv, where I had worked for a period of time for four months in early 2001. And I thought, gosh, I really want to do that. I'm going to apply for that job. And I thought carefully because we had an office in Saudi Arabia and I knew, yeah, that's the Middle East, but I also knew myself personally and I knew it would be a real challenge for me to be effective in a place like Saudi Arabia. But I knew that a a country like Jordan had more progressive views So I thought, I'm going to apply for that job. And I did. And I had 
enormous support. We have a whole internal process, and I came out number one in a group of eight people for that job. And then those decisions, because much as an ambassador is the personal representative of the president, an FBI legal attache assigned overseas is the personal representative of the director of the FBI. And if there is no one assigned from the Department of Justice, you are also the key point person for the Department of Justice. So it's significant role. And you are in that diplomatic environment. So the director makes that decision. And I had been told that I'd done very well. I didn't know at the time that I had come in number one, went to the director's office. All of a sudden, I don't get the job. And I find out that somebody who was roughly number five got the job. Was that person a man? Yes. Imagine that. (laughs) Imagine because I was the only woman applying for the job. And I was, I was crushed. I thought, how, how can this be? You know, I, I know I'm qualified and I, I only applied for jobs where I felt I had something to add, where I knew I was capable and I knew I could function well. And it crushed me. And it was at a very difficult personal time in my life too, going through a divorce and having been in a bad car accident. So it was a confluence of horrible things at one point in time. So I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to keep moving forward. And then Cairo, Egypt came open, which was a more established office, not that long, but it had been open for a number of years. And I thought, I can do Egypt too. So I applied for that and the same thing happened. And at that point in time, two men, the one I just mentioned and another guy who I think the world of, whose name was Scott Jesse, both of them came to me separately and they said, Lauren, they're talking about you being a female functioning in the Middle East and it's just wrong. You got to do something about it. And they told me, they tipped me off and I agonized over what to do. And I talked to, oddly enough, it was the only time in my career and in theirs that my immediate boss was a woman and her immediate boss was a woman of the criminal division in the Washington field office. And they were friends. And I talked to them and I said, this is what the guys are telling me, that they're making calls over there and saying, you know, female can't function. And one of them said in response to that phone call to the person on the phone, look it, anybody who comes over here, it will be easy to deal with their Jordanians because we have a wonderful relationship. Anyone's going to have a problem trying to get a relationship developed in Syria and Lebanon a little less so. But if anybody can do it, Lauren can do it. She's got the right background. She has the expertise. She has the interpersonal skills. I think she'd be perfect for the job. And that was his response. But that's not what happened. So in that culture, if you file an EEO complaint, it can be a career killer. And it was a huge, huge step for me. I wanted so badly to go overseas. I wanted to do other things in my career, but I felt compelled. I had to take on this organization that I loved and I did love it. And I filed the complaint and it took almost two years to the point of resolution. And they came to me for mediation and said, you know, what would you like? And I said, this isn't about money. It's about recognition that any qualified person, no matter what they look like, can do that job. And the fact that you had a conversation talking about my gender as a basis for disqualification is wrong. And all I want is an acknowledgement that that's wrong. And particularly when you're talking about the Middle East and North Africa, where because of a lot of cultural constraints, a Western man isn't going to be able to talk to everybody. Western man can talk to other male counterparts, but a woman 
which the CIA and the State Department recognize literally decades before, a woman can go anywhere and talk with anyone in those cultures in a way that a man can't. So it was short-sighted and it was wrong. And so two years later, the resolution was they, they never admit blame. But I, I know that part of the reason I got Paris was in recognition of that. And second, they gave me the promotion that I had for the job in Paris back two years to the point of when I lost the first job, which was Amman. And I have a report to this day I haven't read that's probably between two and three inches thick and includes the former director of the FBI being deposed, Director Free. But that goes back to who you are in the saying, this is not right and I'm going to I'm going to write it as much as I can, right? I won't speak for you, but at some point you I've assumed that you realized that that you couldn't get exactly what you wanted. You couldn't get those positions. But how do you use that to move it forward? That mm-hmm. you're up against the FBI and there's so much you can do. And it's that one step in front of the other. It doesn't doesn't happen overnight. And it should. It should. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's all wrong. I'm not making any excuses for it. But when we're living in those societies and and bureaucracies and corporations, there's a reality that we are dealing with. Mm -hmm. But stepping up and filing that complaint is huge. That is huge. And that just goes back to being the young woman who said, I'm not going out there by myself with this this woman because we're going to be killed. (laughs) Yeah. And standing up for really what you believe. And so when you left the FBI, Mm Is there anything else you want to add to that story? Any other thoughts you want to add? I don't want to. The only thing I'll add is that I I was happy with the resolution, and I was also happy that in the time that that was percolating within the system, two other women were assigned to assistant legal attaché positions in Pakistan and um, in India. Oh, that's great. So you impacted them, but well, I don't. But, I can't but, claim but credit got, for that. But, but but I will. I will claim credit for it. <laughs> <laughs> and one of them went from Pakistan to become the legal attaché in Sanaa, Yemen. So huge step. Right. But that is, so even if you didn't claim credit for it, it's the moves that you make and other women like you make that make those things happen for other women. And ideally it would have been that you got what you needed and wanted and deserved and they got it too. But eventually that will happen hopefully. But it's those steps that we're taking. I'm all serious. It's really those steps that we're taking that make that huge change. And that leads to what you're doing today in many ways, right? So when you left the FBI, how did you think, how do I top this (laughs) (laughs) as far as excitement? (laughs) Well, it's a great question. I mean, typically people who are FBI executives, as they look at retirement, they think that appeal of earning a lot of money for a finite period of time would be great. Although my love at that point was already moving towards working with women and youth um, internationally. And I'm watching CNN the day that they caught Muammar Gaddafi, and I'm glued to the television, and all I can think of is, I want to be there. I'm not doing this corporate thing. I'm done. I'm done, I'm done, I'm done. And I had some remarkable women in my life at that point in time who were wonderful friends and mentors, um, one of whom, Jenna Dorn, I had a great leadership program, and Jenna was my assigned mentor with the International Women's Forum. And she then introduced me to Susan Davis, who at the time was the chair of the board for Vital Voices and also runs her own amazingly successful PR business in Washington, D.C. And Susan gave me a half a day. She didn't know me except for Jenna said, would you talk to Lauren? And 
the conversation was incredible. And she said to me, why do you think you have to take some sort of interim step? Because I was also looking at doing a fellowship program, something that I thought I somehow needed to build my own credibility in order to do what I wanted. And she said, why are you doing that? Why do you need to take that step? And there was financial concern because it, it meant if I did that, that I would walk out the door with a pension. Now, I understand that many people don't have the privilege of a pension. I get that. But my pension was 50% of my, is 50% of my salary. So it was a big financial decision. And I had to weigh a lot and talk to an advisor and determine whether I could still live a reasonable proximity of the same lifestyle as I did before without doing that and doing what I loved. And the decision was, yes, and I want to do what I'm passionate about because what I found, and I did do three corporate interviews, and I chose corporations that had a huge philanthropic component. That was the only, besides that and working back in Europe, the Middle East, and Africa, that was a component because I felt so strongly based on my experience overseas and the people that I met and came in contact with that that's where I wanted to focus. And it was a big step to leap without that net. And I couldn't be happier with that decision. I'm not rolling in money, but I don't care because I'm rolling in joy with the enormous diverse group of people that I now know all around the world and the ability to have an impact on other people's lives in a positive way and in a way that encourages them to step up and speak for themselves. They don't need me as a mouthpiece or a voice. I'm happy to stand behind and push and get them into the space because these people, and there are young men that I've worked with as well, these young people and these women have the capacity and the capability to change not only their communities and their countries, but what is going on in our world today. And that's what gives me joy is being able to get to know and collaborate with people like that. And you are the ultimate mentor. You really are. I mean, you take it really seriously and you don't take it lightly. I mean, when you come back from a trip with Vital Voices, you're always so happy and you're always sharing such great stories and sending photos of the young women that you met with and telling their success stories. When you first left, and we had only known each other for a few months then, one of the things you were talking about was the importance of women in law enforcement. And I think some of the stories we talked about today about the diversity, why women need to be there. Mm -hmm. But tell me more about why women need to be in law enforcement throughout the world. Not just women, but all rule of law institutions, whether they're in the United States or anywhere else in the world, they need to reflect their population. So that diversity has to be there, whether it's gender diversity, whether it's religious, tribal, it doesn't matter because you have to reflect society. And again, it goes to having group think and it's imperative. And there's a tremendous amount of research out there, well, not nearly as enough as there should be, uh, both by the United Nations and by several other organizations that take a look at how diversity, how women change the equation in conflict and in rule of law institutions. And it makes a huge difference. Most people would be surprised to learn that in the United States, you look at the totality of law enforcement and the percentage of women in law enforcement in the United States has stayed at about 12% for over 20 years. And you look at some of the issues that we're having now and some of the really difficult relationships between communities and the law enforcement community, it's painful for me to watch because 
it does make a difference because women, not all women, and so I'm being careful, yes, I'm generalizing, but there are always exceptions with the women and the men. But as a rule, a woman is going to walk into a potential conflict or violence prone situation. And generally, she's looking at it differently. She's going to find a way to bring down the temperature of what's going on. She's going to find a way to reduce the conflict, not escalate it. And we were always taught early on, and it is so true, you can always escalate if you have to in terms of putting hands on or use of force, but you cannot back down and de-escalate once you've gone that path. And this was true of women that I met all around the world. And I was in these situations in law enforcement with them, and they just look at it differently. They're going to try and diffuse something. So that's one important point. Second important point also well-documented in conflict around the world, whether you're talking about peacekeeping missions under the auspices of the United Nation or here or any other country for that matter, victims, regardless of the crime, are far more likely to talk with and be more forthcoming when they're sitting across from a woman officer than if they're sitting across from a male officer. And that includes male and female victims. Some, as a quick aside, some of the most interesting points in my own career came at my astonishment at how male subordinates came to me to share deeply personal things. And the first time that happened, I was stunned. And it was earlier on. But the fact of the matter is, people will talk more to a woman. The UN has some statistics that show that when women are a part of the peacekeeping operations, the percentage of reporting of sexual assaults and sexual violence goes up as much as 20%, which is huge. And the same is true of conflict. And if women are part of the conversation for conflict avoidance and resolution, it makes a huge difference. If women are at the table in terms of conflict and over a almost 20 year period of 1990 to 2011, there were 585 peace agreements negotiated. Women were mediators 2% of the time. They were negotiators 9% and they were participants in another way only 4% of the time. It's a ridiculously small number. And now that has to wonderful credit in the last five years, that's changed dramatically. But they find that when they look at any peace agreement, if women are a part of it, there's a 20% chance that that peace holds after two years. There's a 35% chance that that peace holds 15 or more years if women are a part of every aspect of it. And we have Colombia to look at with the final um, negotiation with everything with FARC and also the Philippines as well and Northern Ireland. When women are part of that, it makes a huge difference because the overall statistics of failure of peace agreements within the first five years are terrible. So it just makes good sense in every way that you look at it. And if a young woman or man is listening to this and saying, okay, I want to be just like Lauren. I want to go to the FBI. I want to be a part of the FBI. What do they do? They, they don't call, they, so they call the CIA first? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's easy because now there's a website right. that you can go on and it actually says careers with the FBI. Right. Um, but that's number one, right. first of all, you can find that. Number two is the FBI is much more visible nowadays on college campuses. More and more you are finding somebody who knows of somebody. 
and you can reach out. Some people can reach out directly that way. But there's the website's actually quite excellent right so now. Check out the website. If anybody wasn't joining, literally, the it's, FBI, it sounds crazy. Call the CIA first sounds because like, it seems to be like a winning. Yeah. It, seems, it sounds like, like an advertisement. No. but I'm not kidding. Right. But really, the best thing is to find somebody and talk to that person, someone who's done the job. I don't care what the job is, whether it's the FBI or any other career. Go out and explore. Ask people. Who do you know? Who can I talk to? Because you can imagine it. And you can see it on television, but until you talk to somebody who's lived it and can tell you the good, the bad, and the ugly, and there's plenty of bad and ugly with the good, like for every hour that you spend on the street investigating, you're spending two hours documenting. So there's a lot of ways that you can get information, you know, but do that and talk to everyone you know and learn because the more you know yourself, the more you realize that some careers may or may not be right, which is what you. translates to all to everything absolutely that we're doing. So here's a question: What about sacrifices? Were there sacrifices that you made personally, having such an intense job? There were sacrifices. You make a choice, regardless of your profession, as to how much time you want to dedicate to that. And there's a lot of conversation and there has been, you know, for the last at least five years about balance and work-life balance. And although I get it, there's a part of me that is rather disparaging of the notion because we all make choices and it's a choice. And I made a choice to have my job be the most important thing to me. And that was a choice. So the sacrifice that came is I had less time with family and friends. Um, I was married for 15 years to an exceptional human being, a really good man. And, you know, we, when we met and got to the point of talking about marriage, he literally said to me, I, I know I'm likely to be number two in your life, but it's important that I'm in your life and I'm willing to go down that path with you, which I thought was an extraordinary, extraordinary thing to say right. and to have that kind of support. But I will also say that at a point in time, it became too much. And I took my eye off of some things in my personal life, including my marriage. And while that was not a sole cause by any stretch of the imagination, the fact that I was so completely consumed by choice with what was going on with my role in the FBI, that I wasn't as good as a fr of a friend that I wanted to be and that I am today. Um, I didn't give as much time perhaps that I could have given to my family. So those are sacrifices. There's no question, but I realized that and I was able to pivot at a certain point in time and make the decision that I needed to have other things going on in my life because if it was only about work and part of that happened with the EO complaint and part of that happened when I was living overseas, when I never got a break, if I got four hours without being woken up, it was a good night. And seeing all of that made me realize that I had to make a conscious decision to start walking out of the office at a certain hour, ensuring that I got my workouts in because I've always loved to work out, but it was falling by the wayside. And I had to make those conscious decisions and say, stop this. Because what are you going to be in another five years? You're going to have nothing. You're going to be leaving the FBI. You won't have the closeness of relationships that you had. You're going to be a physical wreck. And so I had this own moment of reckoning with myself where I realized I needed to make changes and I did. And I'm happy I made those changes and they have informed my life for the last 13 years. You know, and as I'm getting, as I am older, as I'm getting older, one of the things that I really has settled into me is we really, our life is really a journey. And I don't mean that to be a bumper sticker, mm -hmm. but 
we get to these places where we're able to reflect and look back and you don't have to be in your 60s or in your 40s or in your 50s. It can happen when you're in your 30s when you look back and say, this is not what I want my life to be. And I may not have recognized that had I not done and not doing what I'm doing now. But in this moment in time, this is not where I want my life to be. And just like you said, I need to pivot. I need to remake my roles, whatever they are. But I think so often we get stuck on things just constantly. It's like, well, I'm in this. And so I'm going down that road and I'm going to take that. That next step is always going down a road I don't want to go to. And we're not self-assessing and we're not saying Mm -hmm. what's really important to me. I was saying to someone the other day, we were talking about our parents. My mom's in her nineties and she's now starting to show, you know, up Mm -hmm. until her 89th birthday, the stories were about mom dancing up a storm. And so we were talking about our moms and a friend of mine said, you know, I don't live close to my mom. So if I did, I would love to spend time with her. And he was saying that he doesn't spend time with his mom. She lives like 40 minutes from him. And I said, like, how often do you see her? He said, once every six weeks. And I said, I'm not making, I don't want to make you feel guilty because that's not what this is about. But why don't you change that? I mean, if you're saying that you care about your mother, he said, well, because it's always been that way. And I'm like, yeah, but why don't you change that if that's Mm -hmm. something you want to change? And I thought it just sounds so simple to me. It's like, get in the car and drive to go see your mother. But he was so, and something simple as that, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. it made me realize that as simple as that, what we get stuck in doing things the way we've always done them, Mm -hmm. get to a bigger complex issue like work. And it's so easy to get stuck in all of the voices talking to us and everything we've been doing. So I think that pivoting is such an important thing to say, you realized where your life was. And for that moment, for that time in your life, you were like, I don't want it to be that way moving forward and do something about it. And I think we have to continually pivot. The one thing that I took away from from kind of that series of events that made me rethink a lot of different things, and as you know, something else happened to me a few years ago that made me rethink it. But the way I look at it now is I reassess and consider pivoting on a regular basis now. You know, I'm going through that right now of saying yes to everything, and it's time to step back and say, okay, maybe I shouldn't be saying yes to everything. And to me, one of the healthiest things that I have gotten out of my own decision to rethink things like that over the last uh, 13 or 14 years has been that I stop and I take stock every so often. It's not calendared. For some people, calendaring, it works and saying, okay, this is my week. I'm going to sit and think about this. I can't say that I'm that disciplined, but I do say that I stop and I think, okay, where am I right now? Am I happy with everything? If I'm not happy with everything, what would I like to change? And realizing that you have the power to do that at any point in your life and to say, you know what? Like you're talking about your mom and my mom's in great health too. But it's like, I'd rather, you know, I have two homes, one in another location, one in here. And I just decided, for example, okay, I'm going to consolidate my homes because although I have great friends at the other place and work and great friends and work here, when I think of where my heart is and where the people are that matter most to me, it's here. And so to make a conscious decision to sell a home, consolidate things, and pivot again in my life because in my heart, in my soul, this is where I want to be and need to be as a base of operations now. So to me, it should be an ongoing process, and it will be an ongoing process for me until I die. And I have to say that being in today, I so want you back in the FBI. (laughs) 
<laughs> for the sake Can't of America. <laughs> you won't go back for all of your friends and, and for the country that you love. We no, need you. No, we but, to be, you. but to be a voice out right. there. We need you. And speaking about the good things that go on, that's important as well. I, you know, I just adore you and I want everyone to be able to find you. So where can we find you online? Well, I'm very active on social media. So I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And what what are the handles on those? So They're Instagram consistent, is- with the exception, yeah. LinkedIn is my full name. It's a Lawrence C. Anderson I N T L for international, and for Twitter and Instagram, it's L C Anderson I N T L as well. And I'll include this also in my show notes on Forbes.com. So, Lauren, I just oh, I just have to hold your hand. I just love you. Thank you so so much. You inspire Thank me every time. Every time. Thank I'm you. With you. And what I want to and- say to you. Thank you, because what those of you listening don't know is Denise gave me one of my first opportunities, one of my first platforms outside the FBI when she put me, much to my horror, um, on that Forbes stage at that inaugural women's conference. And there was a serendipitous meeting and two women who have a great friendship and who bounce things off of each other and whose lives are now interconnected with amazing other young women and amazing organizations around the world. And that's a gift. And I thank you for that gift. Thank you. And on my tombstone, I am saying that I caused Lauren Anderson (laughs) to have anxiety. That is (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so to say that Lauren is fearless is kind of an understatement, but it's just the word that keeps popping up in my mind, that she is fearless. But what's really important is that what she does with that, it's her fearlessness that's making the world a better place. And I'm not exaggerating in that. I love how she had that aha moment when she realized that as much as she loved her job with the FBI... She was more than Lauren Anderson with the FBI. And that's something I've struggled with over the years. I was always Denise Ristari at USA Today. And she really made a conscious decision to live a healthier, more full life while still working at the FBI and doing a great job. But she was able then to also say when she reached that point of being done to say, I'm done and there's something else I need to do. And that something else is so near and dear to my heart, and that's helping women and youth find their powers. So the next time we get stuck and we think that we can't move or we're afraid of something, I want you to picture this. Picture like you have a pair of Lauren Anderson glasses, and they're not rose-colored, but they're glasses that will help you see the world that's filled with all the possibilities. Because as Lauren said today, we have to continually pivot. So thank you for joining us today and to get Mentoring Moments the moment it's live every Wednesday. Remember to download new episodes on the Podcast One app or subscribe at Apple Podcasts or PodcastOne.com. And while you're there, make sure to rate, review, and share. So talk to me. I'm easy to find. I'm always on Twitter at Denise Ristari. And until next week, keep sharing your stories because your stories matter. Download new episodes of Mentoring Moments every Wednesday at podcastone.com, forbes.com, the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe at iTunes. 
Christina Wallace. And I'm Kate Scott Campbell. And we're the hosts of The Limit Does Not Exist, a podcast for human Venn diagrams. That's right. We talk to people with intersecting interests in the arts, STEM, entrepreneurship, and so much more. The easiest way to explain science to non-scientists is to use art. I worry that we lose a lot of creative engineers because our engineering curriculum is not creative. Education should be about empowering people to become better thinkers, good problem solvers, creative inventors, and ethical caring citizens. Download new episodes of The Limit Does Not Exist every Monday on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or PodcastOne.com. The right workspace is more than just square footage. It's an incubator of achievement, a magnet for talent. Your workforce unleashed. For 160 years, Savills has been bringing real intelligence to global real estate, ensuring not just any space, but the perfect workspace. Because the most important dimension of a building is the human one. Savills. See what Savills can do for you at Savills.us. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. London police have arrested Julian Assange on extradition charges to the United States, as well as for violating his bail. Assange is accused of publishing classified documents through WikiLeaks. In 2010, he told Sky News he was worried about what the U.S. might do to him. The United States recently has shown that its institutions seem to be failing. Uh, They are failing to follow the rule of law. And with dealing with a superpower... It does not appear to be following, following the rule of law. It is a serious business. He also said in 2010 the U.S. officials had threatened him and those associated with him. There has been many calls by senior political figures uh, in the United States, uh, including elected ones in the Senate, uh, for my execution, uh, the kidnapping of my staff. Edward Snowden, the former security contractor who leaked classified information about U.S. surveillance programs, says the arrest of Assange is a blow to media freedom. I'm Rita Foley.